It is Monday, August 28th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Keller. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a woman who spent five decades working at the Washington County Fair. For her, it's still about the youth. And to see the little kids to come back in and see their face when they say, oh, look what I won. That, to me, is the most rewarding part of this part of it. Plus, we follow 50 years of mortgage rates and home sales in Arkansas. So for this season, we decided to bring together a terrific collection of guests, and we asked them to think about the future of global change. We use Prior Center Archives to deliver a timeline of home economics and using time to think about improving our world. It seems almost beyond belief, but the price of the average new American home is now $101,000. First, the news from NPR. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, kicks off its 69th season Saturday, September 23rd at Walton Arts Center. Performing under the baton of maestro Paul Haas, Sona musicians present Great Romantics, featuring Leonard Bernstein's Symphonic Dances from West Side Story and Sergei Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 2. Tickets and more at sonamusic.org. Historic Cane Hill presents the Cane Hill Harvest Festival Saturday, September 16th, just 20 miles south of Fayetteville. This day of community traditions and family activities kicks off with an Ozark Country breakfast and features live music, crafts, and demonstrations. Guests can also enjoy the Arts and Eats Market, Kids Zone, and more. Full schedule and tickets at historiccanehillar.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, August 28, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. On today's show, Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History joins us in our second half hour with archives that give us a 50-year lesson about interest rates and home sales in Arkansas. First, a trip to the Washington County Fairgrounds. The fair concluded yesterday, but Matthew spent some time there earlier this month visiting with a woman who's been a pillar of the agricultural community in the county for more than five decades. It's 7.30 on a Saturday morning in Fayetteville. Typically not a busy time of day in town in August, but at the Washington County Fairgrounds, the hum of pickup trucks and the clanging of horse trailers, the dragging of folding chairs and tables across the floor of the horticulture building takes you to a different place. For Doris Cassidy, this place is a second home. She's a petite lady in her 80s, and everyone in that building knows she is in charge. They've come to help, you know. The nicer you are to them, the better they help you. And we didn't have enough tables, so I called for the tables. And when they brought it up here, they're not used to driving the tractor. They dumped them in the floor. So that's what they're doing. They're helping me pick the tables up. Doris has been involved in the Washington County Fair since 1968. I was the president for 21 years, and I worked in every office. I was the secretary and the vice president, and then uh, I was president. And after I retired from my full-time job, then I gave the fair up. And so for 12 years, I was just occasionally out here because I didn't want the new president to feel like I was looking over his shoulder. And then they asked me to come back and do this building because the lady that was doing it, who was a master gardener, husband was ill. And she said, and this is such a huge job, that she said she couldn't just leave it with anyone and she knew I already knew how to do it. So this is my third year to do it. 
Doris says her introduction to working at the Washington County Fair was in the horticulture building. My mother-in-law was on the board, and I used to complain that the flower arrangements were tacky. And I said to her, you know, I could do better than that. And she finally said to me, I guess she got tired of listening to me. She said, if you could do better, why don't you do it? Why don't you enter and do better? So I entered flower arrangements, and I did better than what they were doing. Dorsey's leadership and get-things-done mentality doesn't pause, even for just a moment during an interview. And, and, uh, and well, those is, sorts of things. This is the cut flower area. Excuse me just a minute. Oh, you're fine. Uh, Jerry, there is some of those white foam things. If you'll get one of them and wet it, that'll just clean that table like everything. I think there's some laying up there on that table. Mr. Mr. Clean. <laughs> oh, yeah, the little magic erasers. Look, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That just works wonderfully. Anyway, this is cut flowers, so they'll check them in here. That's what these It doesn't take much time in conversation with Doris to see that she's dedicated. Her professional career mirrors that as well. She moved from Texarkana up to Fayetteville to attend the University of Arkansas. My major was dietetics, and then I went to Vanderbilt and did an internship for a year. And when I was applying for jobs, uh, there was one open at the VA. And so I came back, I thought it was so pretty up here. So I came back up here and that's the only job I ever had. I worked there for 50 and a half years. That's wild. I started as a staff dietitian and I finished my career as the associate director. That is wonderful, wow. One job, your whole life. One job, my whole life. Um, I feel like this says something about you. I feel like uh, I feel like that says that you find something you love and you do it and you stick with it. And I had a lot of uh, different, you know, jobs during the time that uh, as you were moving through the ranks, you had a lot of things to do. But I did really love it. I loved working. I loved the VA, and it was a very good place to work. And, uh... Her dedication at the fair these days comes from her work in the Washington County Master Gardeners Club. That's how Alfie Anderson got to know her. Alfie lives in Goshen and joined the Master Gardeners Club during COVID, but had a hard time making friends with other new members. Alfie eventually got connected with a project in Goshen, which is also where Doris lives, and her reputation preceded her. Everyone said, don't touch the roses, those are Doris's. I was like, well, who is this Doris, you know? I was a little afraid of her at the beginning, but now we're thick as thieves. She is actually my adopted mentor. She's taken me under her wing. She's full of knowledge, and um, she's just amazing at what she does. Alfie works to initiate and welcome new members for Washington County Master Gardeners. One element of being a master gardener is not just becoming an expert at gardening, but building camaraderie and ownership in your project. So they depend on you to be there. Um, our Elkins group is really small, maybe 10 to 12 people tops. Sometimes it's like eight, but we love each other so much because we depend on each other to make our town look beautiful. And I think every sanctioned project has that, has that same community. They're a family. And so some ladies will go out and have breakfast or coffee before they go garden. Um, I know if you work at the Shallow Museum, you get pie. Yeah, you get pie. <laughs> and we have to say it like that, pie. Um, and so it's just those incentives to, to bring people together, spend time together on common likes. 
Laura Underwood is a trainee. She stressed that multiple times. And she says the knowledge gained from the club was important to her. Members are expected to commit at least 40 hours of hands-on service and an additional 20 hours of coursework yearly. So she knew it was going to be a big responsibility. I talked to my husband. I said, okay, this is the year I really want to commit because you have how many hours of classing, Alfie? Oh, gosh. The first two weeks or second or third two weeks in February, you're you're sitting in class because this is part of the University of Arkansas Extension Office, right? So you, you go through many hours of class. And then once you do that, there are 18 projects that the Washington County Master Gardeners take care of. One of those projects, of course, is the county fair. And it's a perfect place to recruit future Master Gardeners as well. County fairs across the state of Arkansas have an intentional focus on youth involvement. Wandering through the different barns on site, you'll see kids cleaning the pens where their horses and cows and chickens are being judged. The same is true in the horticulture building as well. A significant portion of the judged entries are from kids. Alfie says one way to keep kids wanting to stay involved is encouragement and asking questions about their projects. Do you grow this? Wow, that's amazing. Tell me about it. And so they tell you their story. They're so proud, especially when they've put the work into it and they have a product that they're proud of. You know, there are first and second place, but everyone's encouraged, did a great job. Even if they need a little help, then you just say, next year maybe think about this and that and the other. And then they'll come back next year and make those corrections. And, you know, they've learned. It's been a learning experience. And that's what it is. It's education and horticulture. And uh, we love the kids when they come in. They're so proud. Doris says one of the missions of the county fair is leadership, especially for the youth who are involved. The ability to win and lose. You know, people have a hard time losing in this day and age. So we try to teach that so that they grow up to know that everything is not perfect. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's good to win a white ribbon as well as a grand champion. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't get the same feeling out of it, but you've participated. Doris says the thing she enjoys the most in the horticulture building is the reaction of the kids once their projects have been judged. And to see the little kids to come back in and see their face when they say, oh, look what I won. That, to me, is the most rewarding part of this part of it. People recognize their talents. Well, it makes all this work worthwhile. As you think about your kids and your grandkids, and you think about the sort of relationship that that you're seeing with Doris or the, the relationship you're seeing other people have with Doris, how does that shape your relationship with your, you know, your kids and your grandkids? Wow, that's a deep question, Matthew. <laughs> well, she's such a role model, right? She really, really is. And if I could share her story with my kids and grandkids about commitment, about finding what you love and committing to it, not fighting from here to there and trying to find this and this, but staying committed, working through it, working with the people, working as hard as you can, having that passion. That's what I want to be able to share. And, you know, one of the things I think about when I think of Doris 
it's that twinkle in her eye. Anybody that has a twinkle in their eye, I'm going to love that person. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for doing this, Doris. You're I really welcome. appreciate it. And uh, it's, it's awesome to see that, that you still love doing this. <laughs> well, I do. You, you don't have to do this. No, I don't have to do it. No, I don't. But, but you love doing it, and I that's why you're it. out here, right? Yes. Yeah. For Ozarks at Large from the Washington County Fairgrounds, I'm Matthew Moore. Excuse me a minute. Can y'all move? Yes. They need to get down in here to hang the chains. I'm so glad I got that on tape. What did I tell you? Can y'all stop standing around? Could y'all stop standing around and do something? You can find links to all of our individual stories reported on the show at our website. You can also find photos, transcripts of the stories, and a link to the daily newsletter at ozarksatlarge.com. The Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series, sponsored by McDonald's, continues Friday, September 1st with Daz and Brie. This Emmy-nominated rock and soul woman-fronted duo from Little Rock combines acid rock instrumentation with operatic and theatrical elements. The Lunch Hour Summer Concert Series leads up to an all-day celebration of KUAF's 50 years on the air to wrap up the series. For more, KUAF.com forward slash summer concerts. Interest rates have gone up in the last few years, but they're nothing like 1981. 1981 was the peak mortgage rate, about 18.5%. This week's trip through archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History traced the ups and downs of buying a home during the last 50-plus years. That's in just a few minutes on today's show. Do you need to get rid of your old car? Why not donate it to KUAF? It could provide hundreds of dollars of support to your favorite programs. All you have to do is call 855-500-RIDE and schedule a pickup. It will be towed, sold, and you will get a receipt for your taxes. Find more information on the membership support page at KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Last week, U.S. District Court Judge Billy Roy Wilson in Little Rock heard preliminary oral arguments to strike down Act 629, a law that bans certain hemp products that contain the Delta THC compound. Four hemp business owners filed suit in late July to strike down this law. Earlier this month, Attorney General Tim Griffin filed a motion requesting the injunctive lawsuit be dismissed. Judge Wilson agreed to hear testimony from state attorneys and businesses impacted by the ban. Ozark's CBD hemp farmer Bill Morgan, who operates Biogen LLC, reportedly testified that he was advised by the Arkansas Industrial Hemp Program Manager to conduct business as usual. Conversely, an Arkansas vape store franchise owner testified that state enforcement authorities ordered one of her store managers to remove tens of thousands of dollars of CBD and Delta products from store shelves. Little Rock attorney Abdin Metazadigan is representing the plaintiffs. He says such testimony proves that Act 629 is vaguely written. And we don't really know the full extent of what the statute uh, is intended to do or how it's being applied. We know already uh, that the enforcement of Act 629 has been uneven, and uh, I think we've seen, and the plaintiffs will, will demonstrate, uh, that the law enforcement community, uh, certainly uh, the science community, doesn't quite understand what Act 629 uh, even means as it relates to the term hemp, because Arkansas has changed its definition. 
He argues that Act 629 changes the federal definition of hemp and also violates the supremacy and commerce clauses of the U.S. Constitution. A ruling from Judge Wilson is still pending. The Fort Smith International Film Festival is awarding the best overall film prize to Cover Your Ears, a documentary about censorship and punk rock. The best of the River Valley. The Best of the River Valley Prize was awarded to Somewhere in Nowhere, a horror film directed by Tanner McChristian. The in-person festival concluded Saturday night. And the 10th-ranked Razorback soccer team now 2-0-1 after tying number 12 Notre Dame 2-2 in South Bend yesterday. Razorbacks are home Thursday hosting Milwaukee. While the housing industry has been in a prolonged slump, there are some signs that this slump might be ending. And for many reasons, it looks as if housing is on the upturn as we come to the end of 1970. This is Claude Locke reporting. Housing. We're going to talk housing with Randy Dixon from the Pryor Center. Let's try to make that sound interesting, okay? Well, I think you're going to. Randy is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual Histories. Almost every Monday we use archives from the Pryor Center to look back at a subject. And, and just a wide, wide range of topics. Right. And this would be one of those. And what I think is interesting is that was from 1970? Yes, and we're well, to... which is when uh, Freddie Mac was created, and that's when the records uh, started. So that's why we started 1970. All right. And, and what I think is interesting is we're going to hear how some things have changed and how some things maybe didn't stay the same, but everything comes back around. Yeah, and in doing this, um, I found – you know, in going through these archives, the KATV back in the early days would divide uh, all their stories, all their news coverage into categories. And it was either by personality, a person's name, or subject. And, it, and it, I find it interesting that at the time, which would have been in the late 70s, uh, Jim Pitcock came up with all of these mm-hmm. subjects matter uh, listings. And one of them I came across was housing. We're, you know, our archives are going to start at 1970, but let's look at where this really, the, the boom really started, which was right after the war. After the world, after World War II. Right. Yeah. And in the late 40s, there were just, it was the creation of the suburb. Right. The American dream. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were just neighborhoods popping up everywhere, and they were these houses that were just building and building. Um, and, you know, I, I guess the easiest formula, at least in my mind, is that in buying a house, you look at what the going rate is for homes at the time, and then, of course, what the mortgage rate's going to be, because right. that's going to determine how much you pay per month in your house payment. Right. So along with checking all the mortgage rates for the past five-plus decades, I checked today's mortgage rates, Mm -hmm. and they are in the upper 7%, pushing on 8%. Uh, But what's interesting is that, you know what they were in 1970? I don't. 7.31%. So relatively the same. It's about the same. So back in the early 70s, we talked to a gentleman by the name of Bruce Blackall, which you'll hear from uh, quite a bit in this segment. 
because he's the uh, head of the Home Builders Association and was for decades, so he was kind of the go-to okay. guy. Um, and listen to this uh, interview with him, and boy, is he optimistic. It's probably the best it's been in a long time, Liz, uh, and this is what we're doing in the month of April. The Home Builders Association is massing a gigantic campaign to let the public know that now is the best time to buy a new home. And why is it the best time? Well, we've got a lot of things going for us right now. Money is available. Uh, there's plenty of it. It's at a reasonably good rate, the best it's been in a long time. And mostly, we most important, we've got some new housing on the market that's ready to sell, ready to move into. And you'll find <laughs> that when we go through all these decades, those home builders and those realtors, boy, everything is peachy keen. <laughs> I mean, they they are so rosy. This is the time to buy, right? Absolutely, now. Yeah. for whatever reason. <laughs> right. Fortunately, we have Mervyn Jabiraj to help us kind of guide us through these home finances. Now, he's uh, the director of the Center of Business and Economic Research here at the Walden College. Yeah. So, here, when I talk to him, he compares those uh, 70s rates with today. You know, I think the key difference between uh, the early 70s and today would be that there necessarily wasn't a shortage of housing built in places where people wanted them. Uh, so the interest rates are remarkably similar. Uh, you know, it's north of 7% in the early 70s. It's north of 7% today uh, where mortgage rates are. But the key difference is that housing was more affordable in the early 70s because a lot of it was being built uh, in places that were growing. So if you think about the state of Arkansas at that time, uh, places that might have been growing would have been around central Arkansas. There was a lot of housing being built uh, for people that wanted to move there or live there. And so even though mortgage rates were high, the overall cost of housing, at least the purchase price of the house, uh, wasn't remarkably high. You'll see he's going to kind of guide us through decade by decade. Um, but I found this clip. We were talking about Bruce Blackall. He's right. back okay. five years later. But I thought this was interesting because he talks about the kind of just building homes, what kind of money it puts into the local economy. One house creates about uh, one year's work for four men. Uh, it creates somewhere in the vicinity of 400 to $450 in taxes. It creates, one new house creates about 3000 to $4,000 in uh, additional sales items like appliances and carpeting and home furnishings and so forth. And the figures that we have that I think are the most outstanding are the fact that for every house that isn't started, we some the community loses somewhere in the vicinity of eighty thousand dollars on that start now to give you an example of what this means right here in greater little rock we are going to be off something in excess of two hundred starts this year from last year now two hundred times eighty thousand is sixteen million and that's sixteen million dollars that is not going to flow into the economy in greater little rock and now here's another report from the mid-seventies from KETV's uh, Pam Martin, and she talks to Roy Rainey 
uh, who's a realtor. New house construction was up 14 percent last month. That's the biggest increase this year, and it means that about 150 million more homes were under construction in July than in June. Building permits signaling future construction were also up 6 percent. First of all, the demand, Pam, is, is there. The people have not purchased houses in a great quantity for is the average price of a home out of reach for most American families I would say no it's more difficult for some of the people to buy the homes however I think it's going to be quite like the car market in very short time where you once drove one great big car and it was stylish to drive the big car and I think you see on now on the road there's a great deal of people driving smaller cars. And I think this is going to be true in, in housing. I think their people are not going to have these large, spacious homes to heat and cool, and it'll be more practical, be more in style to have a smaller home. The largest gains in the industry were in construction of condominium townhouses and multifamily units. Work on single-family units increased only 5% in July, and experts say since summer is the peak building period, this could foreshadow a continuing decline. This is Pam Martin reporting for News Scene 7. So let's move on to the 80s. Okay. This was not a good decade. No. Uh, here's Mervyn. It started at the end of the 70s when Jimmy Carter appointed Paul Walker as the Federal Reserve chairperson, which pretty much cost him his reelection. Um, was that Paul Walker raised interest rates drastically to finally break the back of all the inflation that we see? seesawing through the 60s and 70s. So we'd have periods of high inflation, would seem like we defeated it, Federal Reserve would pull back raising rates, inflation would come back. And we went through this sort of seesaw all through the 60s and 70s. And it wasn't until the, you know, Bob Walker became uh, Federal Reserve Chair in the, I think in 79 or something, um, that the interest rates consistently went up until inflation came down to a stable level. So at that point, the rate increases pushed mortgage rates uh, close to nationally, at least at about 18.5%. So a lot of people, uh, you know, younger baby boomers might have bought their first house at that interest rate. So that is the, you know, high watermark they're used to, um, which is obviously very different than any other time period that we have a lot of data for. So, you know, I think 1981 was the peak mortgage rate, about 18.5%, which was more than double what it was at the early 70s and is more than double what it is today. So it was in 1981 that the U.S. hit an all-time interest high. It was in October, and it hit 18.63%. More, as he points out, more than twice the rate now and twice the rate, you know, in the 70s. Yes. Ooh. And guess when I bought my first house? I'm going to guess the way you're talking. 1981. Do you remember, was it, did you have an interest rate that was? Yeah, it was right around 18%. Wow. Uh, the good thing is I bought a two-bedroom, one-bath house near University of Arkansas at Little Rock. And it was twenty two five, and you were making a hundred thousand a year. Oh, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, yeah. But uh, I was able to to scrape together that mm -hmm. uh, working at Channel Seven. But one thing, uh, oh, and by the way, I did the the math, 
and twenty two five in today's money is seventy five five. Oh, so that's still. I mean, you don't find houses in Northwest Arkansas for seventy five and no, thousand dollars. No, no, and this was not a great house. Well, come on, yeah. but you know, yeah. I was twenty yeah. years old, right? And just getting started, of you know, twenty one. Right. But uh, I did find this story that was interesting. Uh, at the time, KTV had a bureau in Fayetteville, mm-hmm. and Storm Smith was the reporter. Probably should have been a weatherman, <laughs> but. He did a report on people in northwest Arkansas. Their solution was buying mobile homes. Nationwide, the builders of mobile homes, such as this one here, say they're expecting to sell over 300,000 units in 1980. Most of those to young couples, retirees, and others whose families' budget cannot afford a skyrocketing price of conventional housing. The average price of such a home is about $63,000, but the average mobile home sells for around $17,000. The chairman of the Arkansas Manufactured Housing Association says mobile homes are selling to a larger portion of middle-income buyers than ever before. Conventional housing is getting out of the reach of some people. Uh, I don't know what the national average is now, but in our area, building is running $35 to $40 a square foot. Where Manufactured housing is still, you know, from that 15 to $22 square foot price range. Home costs were still the top story, you know, even by the mid-80s, even though interest rates were starting to come down. Here's the beginning of uh, ABC's Nightline with Ted Koppel. It seems almost beyond belief, but the price of the average new American home is now $101,000. How can that possibly be within reach of the average American? And what about those who earn less than the average? We'll talk with one urban affairs expert who says that as bad as things are, they're going to get worse, and with a real estate expert who insists that the American dream is still within reach. But uh, reporter from KTV Kelly Minton did a, a local story, and as a matter of fact, talked to a couple of uh Friends of my family, uh, Randy Alexander and Georgia Sells, who were realtors at the time. According to two Little Rock realtors, housing market activity so far this year has been steady, and it's looking better than ever, according to McCain Company's Randy Alexander. He says there are now better ways to finance a new home, loan packages are improving, and Alexander says the average buyer knows more about what he's getting. We do feel like a house still is a very good investment in um, our society is built around the idea of somebody owning a home in a lot of respects and we feel like that's still the dream of most Americans. Georgia Sales has been the top producer for McKay and Company for seven years. Last year she sold over six and a half million dollars worth of real estate. Ms. Sells says this year has been even better and she interprets that as a good sign for the housing industry. I think that as many families are still buying homes and a lot of people even talk to me about how can we save to buy a home. So I feel like that uh, the desire for a home has not slowed down. According to Ms. Sells, when it comes to houses, bigger isn't necessarily better anymore. A lot of people that have had larger homes, we see people going back to smaller homes. So the trend uh, in the past was, you know, get a small home, move to a larger one, then move to a larger one, and so forth and so on. Now we see a lot of people coming back to smaller homes because of the utility cost. If there's any slump in the market at all, realtors say it's in the seventy-five to $95,000 range. 
Less expensive homes sell quickly because people are always eager to buy their first home. And realtors say people who buy the more expensive homes don't have to wait for a favorable time to buy. So let's, uh, let's find out what was really going on in the 90s. Here's Marvin. At the end of Reagan's first term, we'd finally gotten a control of inflation from the high interest rates. In about 83 or so, the Federal Reserve started relaxing their stance, and so mortgage rates dropped from about 18% to about you know, 12 13% in the mid-80s. And then by the time it was the 90s, we were looking at 10 to 9%. And ever since then, we've had this sort of period of relatively low inflation in the economy, and as a result, Federal Reserve rates have stayed generally lower. Uh, and, you know, I think through the late 80s, you're looking at 10%. Through the early 90s, you're looking at 8 to 9%. Uh, through the late 90s, it continued to go down um, to, you know, 7, uh, 7, seven to 8% at that point. All right, let's do one more local report. Uh, this is from Betsy Pilgrim, um, who talks to John Susky of How- Housing and Urban Development. And we hear again from Bruce Blackall, uh, the Homeowners Association. And again, everything's rosy. If you'd like to purchase a house, you're probably asking yourself, is this a good time to buy? Well, if you ask the experts in Arkansas, the answer is yes, because interest rates are lower than they've been in about 14 years. I came to this job in 81 from the real estate industry, and the rates were, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 percent. They're 10 points below that now. And uh, right now they're the lowest they've been since I've been in this job and probably the lowest uh, since the 70s. There is a good inventory out there to choose from. If somebody is uh, is wanting to build their own, of course, the custom market is always there. But there's a good inventory of houses for sale right now, ready to move in. And it couldn't be a better time to buy a new home. You know, the rest of the 2000s uh, actually looked pretty good. I mean... The lowest rates in uh, history were in 2021, and they were at 2.65%. And I refinanced (laughs) my house then to take advantage of that. And uh, that may have been the lowest, but I think, you know, leading up for a while, it was, you know, three, three and a half, two. I mean, it was much lower than the seven for a steady amount of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was looking good. But I was wondering what the real estate market is like now because I know, you know, our house has increased in value since we bought it 10 years ago. And I think that's the case all over. Well, don't sell because every other house has gone up too. I mean, it's, right. Yeah. Right. So I talked to uh, real estate agent Sarah Ross who's with Exit Realty, Harper Carlton Group, and this is what she had to say about the market today. Um, well, right now it's a unique market compared to other areas in Arkansas. So Northwest Arkansas is still one of the more affordable regions in the state with the cost of living still being an attractive component to people moving here. With the climbing rates and inflation costs, home sales have slowed down short term but we're still averaging about 31 people a day moving to the area so the market's still staying pretty steady we're still in a seller's market so the housing inventory is still low but home prices are staying uh, relatively high compared to recent years Uh, it's a great time to sell but for buyers they're kind of hesitant because of rates and low inventory 
uh, sellers are hesitant because if they sell, they don't know where to go. But, I, you know, you look back and it's always been tough. Right. I mean, let's face it. Right. Um, it was hard for me getting a house for twenty two five. Right. Um, that's just, I guess, the nature of things. All right. You can uh, find out so much about Arkansas history if you go to the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Just put Pryor Center into a search engine. Yeah, let's do something different next week. All right. Um, Some kind of true crime, maybe. Oh, okay. Randy, thank you so much. Thank you. I'll see you next week. Season three of the podcast, Points of Departure, comes out today. The series is a collaboration between KUAF and the Arkansas Global Changemakers, focused on conversations with people in Arkansas and around the world who are trying to find local solutions to today's biggest global problems. Ahead of today's release, the hosts Rogelio Garcia-Contreras and Lawrence Hare sat down with show's producer, Daniel Carruth, to preview the upcoming season. This is Points of Departure. It's the beginning of season three, where we're looking at time as a point of departure uh, and the future of. So I'm here with my co-host, Rogelio and Lawrence. And so, Lawrence, why did you sort of want to use time as a measure for this season? Why was that a topic you wanted to look at? Well, so far, the whole premise of Points of Departure and, and of Arkansas Global Changemakers is to look at change across geographic space to see what we're doing here in Arkansas and what our neighbors around the world are doing at the same time. But we thought to ourselves, why don't we ask together, where are we headed? So for this season, we decided to bring together a terrific collection of guests, and we asked them to think about the future of global change. The future of global change in the context of the future of capitalism, the future of uh, the market economy, uh, the future of sustainability, and uh, topics like these that are common to our human experience around the world are the topics that we are uh, touching on in, in this in this season. Yeah, and it was fun to sit in. I got to sit in on all these conversations, obviously, and just kind of be, because you guys are kind of experts on a lot of this, or you know what you're talking about, and I just get to be there to, to ask some dumb questions every once in a while. But it was fun, especially for some of the, well, it's true, but <laughs> no, for some know. of the... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> there are no dumb questions. <laughs> but for some of the conversations, especially like I'm thinking about uh, Jose and Fernanda, about yes. housing. I thought that was interesting because I didn't, I guess I had never really thought about that in a, a future context or a time constraint context. And so I don't know, can you talk about any of the conversations you guys were surprised by or were just excited, I guess you were excited to talk to? Well, I, I found that one in particular very exciting to talk uh, about, uh, you know, we hear about housing and in our area of the need of housing, mm. affordable, accessible housing in our area. But very rarely uh, do you, uh, we, we talk about uh, housing in the context of sustainability, yeah. in, in the context of culture, in the context of community. And this touches on aspects of the design of the house or the space, the home itself, right? So that, to me, was a very rich conversation, uh, not only because of these aspects related to sustainability, but also because of the, the way in which the whole process of building a house, every single process from the permits all the way to the materials that you build it with, to the design, 
everything has an impact on yeah. our planet and everything has an impact on the way in which the community will be able to access that housing or not. So to me, that was a great conversation with uh, two renowned architects from the Los Angeles area. Yeah, and definitely drove home the point of the podcast, which is that it's these you know, global perspectives. Because when you think of housing, I guess, you know, you do think of it in locally and, and localized. But when we think about development now, it's, the you know, big box houses. And it all seems kind of when you think about development, it's very standardized. But their approach is saying, no, you need to go into the local community and look at it from that perspective. And we can use how other local communities across Correct. the world do that and adapt or take those lessons and adapt here. Yes. And I thought that was great. From the legal perspective, from a financial perspective, yeah. from the design perspective, it's, it's really interesting. And it wasn't just housing. We talked to yeah. a whole range of guests who were talking about big themes with big global connections. And we asked them to think about how they impact us here, how they impact us where they are, and how they're going to impact us in the future. And so some of these included, for example, microfinance. And we yeah. talked to Richard Chango, who is leading a microfinance effort in Malawi, Africa, and what we can learn from the things that he's doing to make his communities better there. Yes, or uh, Cash Acri, our colleague yeah. here at the university at the Walton College of Business in the Department of Finance, who talk about the future of social impact investment in the state of Arkansas with the efforts that he is leading in, in this space, right? Because uh, there is definitely the need here in our state of investors that understand the magnitude and the, 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 the framework and the challenges that uh, social entrepreneurs face, right? So that was also a very interesting conversation. Or in, in, in this topic, uh, conversation that we had with uh, uh, Maria uh, from, from the um, Open Value Foundation in Spain on impact investing, right? Yeah. And the work they are doing uh, at the end of the day is learning from entrepreneurs and innovators around the world that are trying to tackle challenges similar to the ones we face locally and how they are doing it, what can we learn from them, and what perspectives we can incorporate to the realities and challenges that we have here at home to solve them. Yeah. And we also talked to Todd McGowan, a, a noted scholar of capitalism, and uh, how, how he sees the future of capitalism and our relationship to it, which, which affects us everywhere. And we talked to Rianne Eisler, who is a noted scholar of, uh, of gender relations, who looks at, at, at gender ties in history and in the present. And her newest book deals with the future of humanity. This, this, these conversations, as a matter of fact, the last two that Lawrence just mentioned, were, to me, were fascinating, yeah. right? Because they touch on aspects that are a little bit philosophical, a little bit, uh, you know, placing capitalism in context of culture, in context of society. And it's a very uh, provocative, uh, thought-provoking and, and, and interesting conversations that we had with both with Rianne and with Todd. Yeah. These are, these are gr noted authors and thinkers, but we also talked to some real doers, including, very notably, Nacho Dean, a celebrated adventurer who has traveled all around the world to raise awareness about the degradation of the environment and climate change. And we're, we'll be talking to him about his adventures and some of the adventures that he's preparing to do to help raise awareness so that we can preserve the future of our planet. Yeah, España Azul, actually, he traveled around the coast of Spain to evaluate the state of the uh, ocean and sea, you know, that, that, that touches Spain and, and, and the environmental, the quality of the water, the environmental impact and all these things. There's one of the few 
explorer slash scientists that is doing this kind of work uh, around the world and is, is famous in Spain, has become more and more relevant, his work, and that conversation is very inspirational. Yeah, that one almost made me want to learn how to sail. Almost. <laughs> yes, no, <laughs> totally. I, I see barely. what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, but for you guys, I guess, why do you like having these conversations? I know this is what the podcast is about. It's kind of the premise, but, but what do you... What do you like to do this for, you know? And what do you hope people take away when they're listening to it, too? Well, you said that we were experts. And in reality, no <laughs> one is an expert at anything. Oh, yeah. And so it is terrific to talk to people who really know these things about the sorts of things that we should learn about that we can make our communities better with. Impact investing, for example, or environmental awareness, or uh, capitalism studies, or whatever it might be. Yes, to me, it's about learning what others are doing and bringing that knowledge, bringing that concept, that new approach into the classroom. For me, is I, I cannot wait whenever we have these conversations with these amazing individuals, I cannot wait to go back to the classroom and tell my students, <laughs> this is what's happening, this is what so-and-so is doing, this is how they are doing things in, in, in Spain or in Malawi or uh, you know, in, in, in the U.S., in other corners of the, of the country. And that, to me, is what really enriches the learning process of trying to understand a challenge that none of us has gone through before. But whether we like it or not, we have to face this issue of sustainability, this issue of bringing uh, the greatest quality of life possible to the greatest number of people possible is a challenge that our generation is facing. Not other generation has faced a similar challenge in the past. And I think through conversations like these and by sharing these kind of ideas is that we can spark more innovation, more understanding, not only on how difficult it is to accomplish something, but also on how we can start doing something. That's right. We invited our guests to think about the future of the things that they were experts in. And what we're really doing is inviting our listeners to think about the future themselves. Correct. What is Arkansas going to look like in the future? How can we make it better? How can we learn from our, our, our neighbors to improve our lives here? Well, as lovely as it is to speak to both of you, let's hear from some of our guests. Sound good? Sounds good. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Dana. guys. That was Points of Departure's co-host Rogelio Garcia-Contreras and Lawrence Hare speaking with producer Daniel Carruth about the latest season of the podcast, Points of Departure. You can listen online at KUAF.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkin Songs. Well, you're a good girl and you're full of fun. Come down to love and you ain't got none, but I'm hunting. Yes, I'm hungry somebody Well, I'm hungry somebody can love me all night long Elman Mickle was born in Keogh, Arkansas, in Lone Oak County on February 24, 1919. During his career as a blues man, Mickle was known by a variety of nicknames. Harmonica Harry, Model T Slim, and Drifton Smith, with the stage name that stuck best was drifting slim. Whoa, yeah. Something getting wrong with my little machine. Drifting Slim lived and played in Little Rock on radio stations KDRK 
and KGHI in the 1940s and early 1950s when these tracks, like My Little Machine, heard here, were cut. Rift and Slim recorded several tracks at a North Little Rock music store in the early 1950s with Ike Turner, who was a record label talent scout as well as a performer. This track, Good Morning Baby, recorded May 6, 1952 in North Little Rock, features Ike Turner on piano, guitarist Babyface Turner and Junior Brooks, and Bill Russell on drums. Good morning, baby. Drift and Slim moved to Los Angeles in 1957 and will be based out of California for the rest of his career. He played a variety of instruments and recorded standard blues for smaller blues labels like Wonder, Kent, and Elko. But Drift and Slim really found his voice when performing as a one-man band, singing and playing harmonica, guitar, hi-hat, and bass drum. Whoa, yeah! Something getting wrong with my little machine. These recordings were made in December 1966 and January 1967 and show the Lone Oak County native was a natural storyteller. He had to leave me about a mile and a quarter from my house and go get the doctor. And Dr. Smith, bless his heart, he said, I can't save this boy's life. He won't live till tomorrow. He said, but you can put his head in his ice and it might stop it. And they fill a tub full of ice and put it around my head. And I come through. I swallowed that dip of snuff. And when my face come through, I was heaving. The first thing I done, and I heave that dip of snuff up. I ain't like no snuff since. While still in his late teens, Drift and Slim persuaded John Lee, Sonny Boy Williamson I, to coach him on harmonica. This Sonny Boy Williamson is not to be confused with Sonny Boy Rice Miller Williamson II, who lived and died in Helena. Later in life, Drift and Slim would brag he could perform every number John Lee, Sonny Boy Williamson, ever recorded. Although Drift and Slim could play more contemporary blues styles, as well as the older rural blues, blues were out of fashion with the record-buying public by the time the Keo native first recorded in 1951. When he made the recordings heard here in the late 1960s, Drift and Slim was a factory worker in California, where he died in 1977. Here in its entirety is Elman Mickle, also known as Drift and Slim of Keough, Arkansas, with This World is None of My Home. I didn't have to work on no sharecrop or nothing like that. 
trying my best to get it right so everybody knows it. But I was the third child my mother had. The first that mama had, I don't know which one of them, but daddy and mama laid on him and smothered him to death. The second one was vice versa. I got off awful cough myself. But I was the third one. Mom and Daddy had lost their first two children. Grandpa said, you ain't gonna lose this one. I'm gonna carry him over to my house. And Daddy got mad and went and told his papa. And, and his papa told him, said, bring him home before the sun go down. Don't you can meet me. That's way back when they get to Winchester's and have a shooting scrape. Grandpa said, I got him and you can't take him. And I'm gonna keep him as long as I live. Said, meet me in Keo tomorrow. I meet you at nine o'clock. They gonna shoot it out. But the people in the community, they talk them out of it. Now one of my grandfathers, he's dead, but the other one is living. I guess grandpa's son must be about a hundred years old. But he's living right now. Bless his little old teeny weeny heart. If you need any further information, you can write Keo, Arkansas, and write Arch Mickle. And it's a lot of them go to it. I remember when Dad used to have me and Arch on it. Yeah, what do you say? Elman Mickle, or Driftin' Slim, from Keogh, Arkansas, in Lone Oak County, with This World is None of My Home. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook, with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, a familiar refrain in Northwest Arkansas: "There's a need for more affordable housing." I think we're going. What we're going to see over the over the course of the next two to five years is creativity in how we can chip away at the problem. Tomorrow at noon and 7 on KUAF. This is 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 art series begins Sunday, September 10th at 7 p.m. with Scythian, Ukraine to Appalachia. This foursome brings Celtic, Eastern European, and Appalachian influences together with technical precision, telling musical stories steeped in various folk traditions. Tickets and information at waltonartscenter.org. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents the final season of Listening Forest. Guests are invited to explore an interactive world of light, sound, and wonder in this immersive nighttime experience. Opening August 30th. Tickets at crystalbridges.org.